It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 7th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. On Tuesday, the government will announce its budget for 2022. There are many demands, as always. Some of the demands are old demands or historical claims, but some are new, especially on foot of the pandemic and the need to stimulate the economy. Balanced against this, of course, is the money borrowed to get us through the last two years, 40 billion euro or thereabouts, new debts on top of old debts. And let me just elaborate on that issue of public debt. It is approaching a quarter of a trillion euro. To express this more meaningfully, this is equivalent to around 50,000 euro per person, a figure which is amongst the highest in the developed world. This is the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue. At some point, the debt will either have to be paid back or what is more likely is rolled over. What is likely at that point is that it will be rolled over to a higher interest rate because we cannot expect nor base a strategy on the exceptionally low interest rates of today lasting forever. The debts our children will inherit from us feed into the Minister's thinking, but next year he plans on increasing spending. A total budget package of €4.7 billion. Spending, as is usual in recent years, will be split two to one on public service and tax cuts. Core spending will increase by €4.2 billion, including €1 billion for entirely new measures. The remaining 3.2 billion would allow for demographic pressures to deal with any changes in public pay and there will be a significant increase in capital spending of some 1.1 billion. So that's a, an overview of the spending. A further 500 million euro will be focused on some tax measures and this of course will be outlined on budget day. The SCS outlines how over the next two budgets temporary COVID related... That's the Minister for Finance, uh, Pascal Donoghue, uh, with uh, the... 
macro overview of the budget, which will be announced on Tuesday. Gerald Nash, Labour's spokesperson on finance, has been crunching the numbers himself and published the Labour Party's alternative budget for 2022, a new deal for Fairer Ireland yesterday. And he's on the line. A very good morning to you, Jed Nash. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I, I take it you see the challenges in the same light as the Minister, but uh, the approach would be somewhat different. Yeah, we, we do. Um, we're borrowing um, records, record amounts um, of money, um, and that was the right thing to do. And that's what I advised the Minister to do uh, last year as well, to deal with the um, issues relating to the pandemic, keeping people in work, keeping businesses open and making sure that people who lost their jobs temporarily uh, because of the pandemic didn't fall into uh, poverty. Uh, the Minister is right. We have a very large national debt. We had a reasonably large national debt coming into the crisis. But this is a very different scenario we're in now than we were in 10, 11 years ago. And the important thing to point out, Michael, is that the international community are dealing with this crisis much more differently, much differently than they did the crisis in the late hmm. 2000s, early 2010s. We're in an era now of... Uh, they're allowed to. <laughs> they're allowed to, exactly, yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah. EUIMF and ECB have learned the mistakes of what they imposed on Ireland, what they imposed on Greece uh, and, and other countries, and that's a good thing. Um, in our alternative budget proposition, we accept the government's figures uh, in terms of the macroeconomic scenario uh, more generally. Um, what we would do, is, and where we disagree with them, is this. Um, the package that the government are going to produce next Tuesday will involve tax cuts of half a billion euro. We don't believe this is the time for tax cuts. We believe it's the time for investment in the services that everybody needs and everybody benefits from. The Thomas just said they're not tax cuts. It'll be tax indexation because people will be getting modest rises, but they'll be taking little or nothing home if uh, the tax bans aren't adjusted. Well, by definition, they they are they are tax uh, they are tax cuts. People aren't kicking my door down, Michael, looking for very modest tax cuts of ten or twenty euros a week, and that's what we may be talking about here. Um, so, I think the money that is set aside for tax cuts would be better used uh, to invest in you know, universal mm. public childcare, uh, in dealing with waiting lists uh, and other very important aspects of our public service. We've seen the yawning gaps that COVID nineteen has exposed in our public services, and we need to spend everything we have investing in those because we all benefit from those public services. Now, the government will spend about 4.7 billion. That's the kind of quantum of money that they intend to invest this year. We say we would invest 5.7 billion and we would essentially uh, borrow an additional 2.1 billion euro for capital investment to build about an extra uh, 2,000 public homes and 8,000 affordable homes and uh, homes that would be in the the rent to buy kind of sphere. And we would also as well uh, generate an additional 1 billion euro in revenue from cutting off some very expensive, poorly targeted reliefs that really only uh, end up benefiting the better um, off. We'd also as well extend the bank levy. The famous bank levy that was introduced Mm. um, a number of years ago, a couple of hundred million euro, we would retain and increase that. It's actually due to expire uh, in October uh, this month. Um, So we would actually uh, increase that and roll that bank levy over. That would generate an additional 1.4 billion euro for spending. Uh, That wouldn't involve uh, increases in income taxes at all, uh, but it would involve... uh, uh, closing down some expensive reliefs and doing things like introducing really small increases on stamp duty on shares, which could generate, for example, an additional 120 million euro. Because our focus this year, Michael, mm. is very much on first and foremost on dealing with the soaring cost of living and 
in doing that, I have people contacting me, Michael, and I know other deputies in the area are in mm. the same um, position. People who never contacted me before, who are struggling with their energy bills and really, really worried about how they're going to heat the house uh, this winter. So uh, we would would be proposing you know, social welfare increases of €7.50 Euro 50 a week on core weekly payments. Remember, the core weekly payments haven't gone up for two years, but we would also have a €340 million Euro fuel bills package. And that would not just be mm. focused on extending the um, fuel allowance and extending the eligibility, eligibility thresholds, mm. but it would also involve giving uh, what we call a carbon tax refundable tax credit and we'll come to back working to that, families. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a moment because uh, I think yes. that's uh, a, an important issue, certainly facing into the winter that we are with uh, the soaring costs uh, of energy prices. Uh, but tell me a little bit more about the funding of all of this uh, because the big story today, of course, is uh, the corporation tax rate. And it looks uh, certain that the government has uh, secured this guarantee from the OECD that the rate will be set at 15%, not mm. at least 15%. You agree with that and you believe that Ireland should sign up to all of that. Uh, but are you basing your budget estimates on the fact that we'll be raising more money through corporation tax because the rate will be higher, going from 12.5% to 15%, or less money, uh, because the government has been arguing that tax reforms of this sort will result in a reduction of €2 billion. Euro. The government are wrong, by the way, um, and I've pointed this out from the get-go. Um, we're the only major political party that came out early and has been consistent in saying that Ireland should sign up to uh, the uh, to Pillar 2, as it's known, of the OECD Global Ta- uh, Corporation Tax Reform um, process. Uh, they got their sums wrong as well. Um, they have been saying repeatedly that uh, Ireland was set to lose about €2 billion Euro, uh, a year if we were to sign up to those reforms. They were working on old figures. And the truth is that if the minimum rate of corporation tax, effective corporation tax rate goes up by a very marginal amount, uh, which it looks likely it will, and we're glad that finally the government have taken our advice and looks set to sign up, and that will actually mean what we might lose on the swings and Pillar 1, um, where funding is taxes are essentially reallocated as a complex it's a complex um, mm-hmm. equation um we will actually uh, gain on the roundabouts uh, when the uh, um, figure goes up uh, by two and a half percent because remember michael this is a global floor beneath which no mm. Rented to fall. So this is the end of, of that kind of race to the bottom in corporation tax. So Ireland will be- benefit, um, I think, but will substantially. It mean, will it mean that companies that are paying 2 and 3% in a country that has a rate of 12.5% will yes. pay 15% or will they pay 2 or 3%? Now, it has to mean a minimum effective rate, and that's the difference, Michael. Hmm. 12.5% is a nominal rate. Uh, very few companies are paying... Well, yeah, very but, the, few but those companies, companies, now, th- those companies now are paying a, a minimum rate of 12.5%, aren't they? But uh, they're also taking uh, advantage of some structures yeah. and mechanisms that are in place. Can those structures and mechanisms be in place when this rate of 15% is put in place and my allow view, them to pay 2 or 3%? My, my view is they can't. What would the point of introducing a new minimum effective rate of global corporation well, tax... Uh, what would it be? Well, I, I don't um, know. I mean, the same question the can be being? asked about the existing rate, though. Absolutely. The difference is Pillar 1 um, and the reallocation. You know, in, in other words, what, what what Pillar 1 seeks to do without getting into the um, mm. nitty-gritty of this is to uh, reallocate taxes uh, to the markets, actually, where, where the, the products and services are, are sold. Mm. Uh, so we, we know at this point in time that Ireland has attracted the very unwelcome uh, label of being a, a tax haven. Uh, it's not a tax haven by definition, but it certainly um, demonstrates a lot of the um, 
characteristics of a tax haven because of uh, the mm. way in which money can be moved from Ireland, for example, to Malta, uh, which I highlighted in the Dáil a couple of weeks ago um, in relation to mm. uh, an experience of one particular uh, high-profile pharmaceutical company uh, that's funneled money mm. you know, from Ireland into Malta to reduce their tax bill, or in this case, pay no corporation tax whatsoever. Mm. Those kind of shelters need to end. Now, we have to stop this whack-a-mole approach to corporation tax, and that's what this OECD process is about. Right. You know, one, one shelter is closed down, another opens up. Yeah. Yeah, but what uh, it means is the first time what it means is that the pharmaceutical companies and uh, the IT companies and these big huge uh, digital multi corporations pay little or no taxes we've seen in, in this country whereas uh, the butcher the baker the candlestick maker are paying their 12 and a half percent are they going to have to pay 15 percent uh yes oh Right. That's well. At least that's that's that that's that's our advice, and that that's the whole purpose right. of the OECD. I process. think the government is hoping that uh, there'll be an exemption for companies uh, with a, a turnover of less than seven hundred million. Oh no, that's clear. Uh, p- pardon me. Pardon me. My, mo- now, most tech companies we're talking about here. No, sorry. The butcher, companies. the baker, the candlestick, the, candles, the oh, small. Uh, b- beg your pardon. Uh, the indigenous Irish firms. Yes, you know, yes, will, yes. Will yeah, pay the sm- small businesses. Yeah. In fact, there are very few um, mm. indigenous Irish firms of that scale. Yeah. That will be paying twelve and a half percent or any, anywhere uh, near it. Right, and yeah. Again, I mean, the minister announced two weeks ago uh, in the Dáil that. Uh, he was talking to the European Commission about mm. the notion that Ireland could retain a 12.5% rate for Indigenous firms. Uh, that's always been the case. Um, I, I think uh, in many ways he's making a virtue out of this. Um, it is a fact. I mean, 12.5% can still apply to any firm, uh, uh, particularly an Indigenous firm, that doesn't have a global uh, minimum turnover, uh, annual turnover of um, over 750 million euros. So this new 15% rate will only, in any case, apply to very, very large corporations. All right. Uh, Talk to me uh, about uh, this uh, carbon tax uh, credit uh, that you're proposing because uh, it it may be a very good thing to charge me more for a bag of coal so that we can save the planet. But how is it going to save the planet if the only way I have of heating my house is by using my coal fire? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's the point. And people will be spending more because of increases in carbon tax that are locked in now Michael, over the next five years. Um, the Dáil approved that last year. Uh, there's a kind of an assumption that we made that we vote in budget night on carbon tax as there is on excise and so on. That's not the case. That was locked in last year uh, by a government vote uh, in, in the Dáil. So what we need to do now is to use the taxation system to try to make sure that people aren't uh, overly adversely affected, uh, particularly at this point in time where energy prices and inflation more generally are rising uh, uh, literally week in, uh, week out. And as I said to you earlier on, I mean, I'm being contacted by people now who've never been in touch with me before, people who are in work, uh, people who are, who are generally doing okay, are very, very worried about their energy bills because they may be living as well in a house that um, is has a poor energy rating. Uh, they can't afford to uh, upgrade it. Um, they can't afford to retrofit it. And there's no sign yet of the natural, national retrofitting campaign. So what we did was we scoped out this idea that there could be a refundable uh, tax credit, carbon tax credit uh, of €200 Euros for households where the income is less than 500 or 50,000 uh, a, a year um, and where the energy rating is below uh, B2. Now, we would taper that down uh, as the national retrofitting programme um, begins to commence because uh, this is where the real problem is. We've been slow, I think, as a country to um, introduce a national campaign, as it were. There's no evidence of a national mm-hmm. campaign as yet on uh, retrofitting uh, of homes. And it's a job-rich job rich area as well. Eamon Ryan tells us that that campaign is coming. 
uh, it was announced again, re-announced in the National Development Plan, and time will tell. So this could apply to our estimate is about 500,000 um, homes, and we've costed that with the department, the relevant department, at 100 million uh, euros. Okay, uh, you're talking about putting more money in health, over a, a billion euro into health, as well as privatising a couple of hospitals. Yeah, um, and the privatisation privatization concept of, of uh, two, um, two private hospitals really came about last year, and it's something that's remained um, as part of our um, existing policy, really as a bridge, uh, Michael, to launch care and the development of a new Irish National Health Service free at the point of entry for everybody, a uh, single tier health service. It's very difficult, of course, to you know build a hospital overnight and uh, produce the 300 beds that we feel are are, are, are needed. Uh, so we would say that, as we did uh, when COVID first hit, effectively a number of national, you know, private hospitals were nationalised overnight. That would be a bridge for us between the situation we're in at the moment, where uh, there's a mix of public and private provision uh, in the health service. That would act as a bridge then to slaughter care, uh, where over a period of years we would move towards the national health service model that uh, anybody who's familiar with the UK would be familiar with. Okay, housing obviously a, a big challenge uh, for anyone in government. Uh, you're proposing building twenty thousand houses a year. Yeah, well, what we would do is, and, and this is what we come back to the borrowing piece. Um, government obviously would continue to borrow at low interest rates to um, plug the capital investment holes that we have in our country to deal with those gaps in our public services and social provision. Uh, we would borrow an additional two point one billion euro uh, next year. Uh, remember, at a four million euro interest rate, that's what we would be paying uh, next year interest on the two point one billion euro loan on the international markets to run our country. Uh, we would invest that in housing to build about an extra two thousand public homes and public land. And, uh, and develop seed funding as well then for about 8,000 affordable and uh, build to, build to, uh, to or buy to rent, um, rent to buy, I should say, uh, homes over a period of time, adding to the government's existing plans in um, in the Housing for All strategy. Okay. Uh, there's costings uh, attached uh, to your alternative budget. Have they been approved by the department? Uh, these are costs we've received from uh, the relevant departments. They don't, uh, on an overall basis, assess our budget. Um, that's not something that they're prepared to do. Um, as was the case last year as well, we asked them, we, we've designed a, a what I'd describe as a, a, a wealth tax, a tax on assets to try to generate more of a contribution from those who have the most in this country and they simply refuse to do that so what we've done instead is identify as i said earlier on a number of different kind of expensive reliefs that are only really used to benefit the already very well off and we've decided that we would uh, close those down or reduce them down things like as i said uh, the increase in stamp duty and shares has been huge trading uh, uplifting trading in shares in ireland over the last two years that would generate about 120 million euro Uh, we would increase stamp duty and house sales over 1 million euro to five percent bringing that up a couple of percentage points more than where it's at at the moment introduce you know a new um, bank levy and introduce things like you know, a, a two and a half percent increase in stamp duty on commercial um, property as well. Um, areas that wouldn't affect growth, areas that wouldn't affect the productive uh, end of the economy, wouldn't protect, wouldn't impact on jobs and businesses. Okay, we leave there for the moment. Uh, the government will announce its budget next week, uh, and I'm sure we'll your, we'll hear your analysis of, of what they're proposing then. But thank you for going through your proposals for us uh, this morning. That's uh, Gerald Nash, Labour's spokesperson on finance and TD for Loud and Eastmead. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, speaking of soaring energy prices. Government accepts that households are currently facing volatility in energy prices. 
due in particular to a spike in international gas prices. We know that over the coming winter, the people will be faced with higher energy bills. This is local TD and Minister Damien English explaining to the Dáil yesterday why the government could not accept a private member's motion which would issue an emergency order to cap the price of electricity, gas and home heating oil. Electricity and gas markets are commercial, deliberate and are competitive in line with EU policy and result in greater choice for consumers and businesses in terms of suppliers, products and prices. So the government is not going to cap the prices. Within this overall competitive framework, the best long-term policy, in our view, is to support households with their energy costs through energy efficiency, efficiency measures, efficiency measures, with government providing a total retrofit budget in access of £218 million for this year, and again, long-term commitments in the National Plan, setting out where we hope to go in the years ahead. Damien English, the People Before Profit motion was tabled yesterday ahead of what everyone accepts will be a massive increase in the cost of energy. If this uh, price increase comes, and it will come, then what effects, what uh, policies will you try to mitigate uh, them energy prices? Uh, leading on to uh, po- uh, fuel poverty. Because, you know, that fact itself, where people actually die of hypothermia uh, or, you know, po- fuel poverty, surely that is a, a very, very, very serious matter in relation to this government. Very, very serious. That's uh, Gino Kenny of People Before Profit, who's on the phone with us. Good morning to you, Gino, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, were you exaggerating things there, overstating it a, a bit by suggesting that people will die from the cold, from hyperthermia? No, Michael. Uh, it's fact that, you know, uh, people will die uh, of fuel poverty in relation to, uh, you know, not getting access to fuel during the winter time, and that's 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 fact. Mm. Uh, it is quite incredible that that is fact that over a thousand people, um, and a year, it will their death will be attributed to um, fuel poverty. So it's a quite a serious matter, and obviously the motion was put to a vote yesterday, last night, and mm. um, and you know this is a kind of a a wider issue in relation to energy prices that everybody's going to be feel the effect of um, and who, regardless who you are but obviously it's those that are in a very low income bracket mm. that will be kind of exposed more ways than one Well the cost over to, the winter is scary I mean I think we've been hearing around four or five hundred euro uh, and I think you yeah. said around it could be as much as eight hundred yesterday Yes eight hundred it could, it could go one thing from 500 to 800, but that's a substantial percentage uh, increase in relation to those, you know, mm. fuel bills. And obviously, you know, there's, there's people uh, that won't be able to afford that, so they'll have to kind of cut back on other things mm. other than um, like food. Um, and obviously the fuel allowance obviously is, you know, in, so, in some cases won't kind of cover the mitigating circumstances. It, it could be a very cold winter. Mm or, you know, on the price of new carbon taxes and so forth. So so it's a quite a serious yeah. situation. And yeah. some of this is out of our hands because it's obviously a geopolitical kind of... Uh, um, there's geopolitical reasons as well that uh, fuel prices are, are increasing. Um, and, you know, I think, I think to, in my opinion, it stems from uh, in relation to the deregulation of energy supply. Uh, I mean, the ESB is a fantastic company. Um, and, you know, it's our opinion that at this moment in time, 
prices of fuel and energy should be capped. There should be a maximum price for everybody. Okay. So there shouldn't be a situation where there's, you know, there's, you know, people will find themselves kind of choosing between heating their home or food. Now, the the, the minister case. was saying to you yesterday, though, that uh, the government can't interfere in the private market like that. The government doesn't want to. But uh, apart from that, uh, it can't under European regulations. I don't buy that. I really don't buy it. You know, um, when an emergency situation comes in, such as this, you know, the directive can be uh, given to energy suppliers. And that was noted in their our motion that a, a maximum price can only exist. So there's, mm. there's a plethora of um, energy suppliers and the directive should be, look, you cannot charge people for then you know, a maximum price. And that will lower uh, prices uh, for people to get access to them. But also the companies still make kind of profits. And obviously there, that's what they're kind of, that's what they, that's what they're there for. They, they make profits. Uh, but I don't think they should be making profits on the, on the backs of people that are kind of, will find themselves uh, in situations where they kind of, you know, have to kind of cut back. And uh, these are they're quite very serious mm. situ- situations. We have this kind of every year. Uh, but, you know, coupled with that, where data centres, which they've been in the news a lot in the last uh, three, four weeks, uh, and an enormous amount of electricity, uh, up to 11% uh, of all the electricity supply in Ireland. Mm. That will increase. Now, I mean, people will have to ask themselves, what kind of social use uh, do data centres kind of, um, uh, you know, why, it, I mean, there, obviously there, need, there is a need to be some data centres, there's no doubt about that, mm. but no, continuous... More in Dublin more than there more. is in London. <laughs> the, the, the most in Europe are located in Ireland, uh, and yeah. uh, as we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks, the estimate is uh, that by the end of uh, this decade, they'll be using between 30 and 70% of all of the electricity produced in this yeah. country. Yeah, yeah, and that's, um, you know, it's a, it's a scary thought because you know, that's an enormous amount of electricity and enormous, an enormous amount of resources. And, you know, the, some ministers and even the teachers have said, look, there's no guarantee that, you know, uh, there could be energy kind of uh, outages this winter. Now, it's kind of pretty amazing to kind of statement to say yeah. that they can't guarantee, uh, you know, well, that the, the lights will be on. We heard government ministers say that in the past, but it was the 1970s uh, because of the rolling strikes that took place. Yeah. And we all had yeah, candles yeah. in the house because of the ESB gripes, uh, which uh, are a lifetime ago for many people. But in yeah. terms of providing power, uh, it is completely unheard of that we have the, we don't have the wherewithal. We may not have the wherewithal to provide power. Yeah, well, that's kind of it's an incredible statement to make. Yeah, that you know they cannot guarantee uh, that the electricity will be on. Now, hopefully, that doesn't happen. Mm. But to even suggest it is uh, it's quite incredible. Uh, and there's a numerous factors the reason why they are actually saying that, um, and that's obviously some of it is geopolitical, some of it is down to kind of supply, some of it is down to kind of who is actually using what and where. And data centres at the moment, you know, this is, you know, not scaremongering, mm. but we use an enormous amount of electricity, an enormous amount of electricity, up to one-tenth of all energy that's used per day in mm. Ireland. Um, and if you, you could have a situation, I think hopefully it doesn't happen, yep. you could have a situation where data centres are on, but people's homes are are not lighting up. So well, well, every data centre that opens its doors is the equivalent 
uh, of uh, building a city the size of Kilkenny, apparently. Uh, It's an incredible amount of electricity that they use and water uh, and other resources, uh, of course. Uh, But uh, when we look into the immediate future and this cost, whether it's uh, with uh, the data centres drawing on from the grid or or not, the cost is going to soar one way or another. Uh, Will increases in unemployment payments or pension payments or fuel allowance or uh, an increase in the minimum wage or any of these things offset those increases? Well, I think the introduction of carbon taxes is retrogressive um, tax and error, kind of opinion. Um, a carbon tax, you know, we've we've been very kind of consistent around that it kind of punishes you know, low-income families. And I think at this moment in time, to introduce carbon taxes during a possibly energy crunch is, you know, it's not the it's not the way to go at this moment in time. And again. From from our point of view, we've always been against carbon taxes because it does it punishes low income families in relation to kind of fuel costs. Mm. And what what should happen is that you know a carbon tax should be put on the, you know the big polluters in society, mm. uh, which are the big kind of you know pharmaceutical companies such as data centres. Mm. Uh, they use an enormous amount of energy, uh, so there should be a kind of a tax on them. Okay, but if unemployment payments or, or the pension uh, are to be increased, let's say, by a, a tenner, uh, I think people are saying 10, 15 euro at least will be needed. Uh, would that help people or would it be sufficient for people to heat their homes? Well, we'll, hope, we'll, we'll know in the next couple of months, Michael, if that's the case. Mm. Uh, and obviously, I think, you know, through the budget for pensioners or those who are unemployed is welcome. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, this is all relative mm. in relation to if you want to, you know, free, you know, heat your home, you know. Put, and I don't think it's just the cost. Yeah, I don't think it's just the cost of heating your home because uh, I mean, if you're not no. he- if you're not heating your home, you get things like damp, and that it leads to other costs uh, and yeah. huge costs. Uh, not only that, but uh, I mean, if the cost of energy uh, increases uh, on the scale that we're talking about, uh, the supermarket is going to have much bigger bills, so they're going to have to claw that back by putting uh, a couple of cents on the price of peas and a couple of cents on the price yeah. of bread or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a knock-on effect mm. uh, for if energy prices go up. Because uh, that will trickle down to prices for everything, uh, and obviously, you know, you can mitigate that through kind of the budget and so forth, through fuel allowance or an increase in pension or mm. you know, or job seekers allowance. But again, that is all relative to how what the price of fuel goes up. And if thing, if if the kind of predictions are right, you know, the the price of fuel for everybody will go up. At least by at least by ten percent of what they are paying now. At least that, absolute, at least that. So that is completely inflationary in relation to the, you know what people are earning. So you 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 have you could have a situation where people have to choose between heating their home or you know or or eating. Mm. You know, and uh, you know that's not always a grand possibility this winter. All right, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always. Uh, that's people before profit TD for Dublin Midwest. Gino Kenny. Michael Reed on LMFM. Over the last couple of months, we've become all too familiar with the buzzing and the beeping of scam calls and scam texts. The CSO published data this week which showed a 40% increase in fraud in comparison to this time last year. This month alone, I've received 10 text messages and dozens of phone calls. And my constituents are reporting being inundated with messages to the point where they are now sceptical of every call and every text they get. And that's just wrong. 
these texts and calls are coming from people purporting to be from reputable bodies like the Department of Social Protection, the Gardaí, the HSE, Unpost and Delivery Services. And besides being terribly annoying, um, they're also a threat to the vulnerable amongst us, in particular to, to older people who mightn't be as tech savvy and who might fall victim to some of these scams. People who are living alone are feeling harassed and intimidated by how frequently they're coming. And I suppose, Tanisha, I'm asking here today, what action can government take to crack down on these calls and texts, many of which are falsely claiming to be coming from the government? That's Fine Gael TD, Emer Higgins. The response she got from uh, the Tanisha was, well, there's very little that the government can do, although it will try, but the best thing people can do is be cognizant of uh, this threat and uh, government will try to keep informing people to be careful. And it's not just your phone, as you know, it's also on the internet. And this month is European Cyber Security Month. Let's speak to Sean Moynihan, the Chief Executive with Alone. Good morning to you, Sean, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. I saw you on the news last night talking about this and saying to people, look, just give nobody your bank account details uh, over the internet or, or any of that type of information that they're looking for and be watching out mindful that these scams are taking place all of the time. Yeah, I think, look, we, we all know that uh, so much of services and what we do has moved online, right? But at the same time, is is unfortunately, so has some of the crim- criminals and the fraud. fraud. So yesterday, we, they, the, it being Cybercrime Month, Department of Justice and the guards are running, are running public information um, over the next over next month about how to keep safe and also realising that older people or people who are vulnerable to, to, to crime are also vulnerable online. Mm. So what we need to do, what we're working to do, is get older people to be careful, to be cautious. But we also want to build our confidence online because there is so much of... Um, of what we do is now moved online, but there are also many things older people can do that to enhance their lives online. Mm. So I think that's that's the challenge that we have here. It's very easy to get caught, isn't it? I mean, these guys are, are, are very clever and they might be telling you that uh, they're going to close your bank account unless you get in touch, so click this link to stop it. Or they might be telling you that they owe you money and you need to click this link to claim it or, or whatever it is. And unless you're on guard... Uh, it's very easy just to take it at face value. Absolutely. I think the the thing we've all realised is the amount of text uh, and uh, emails and that scams that come through. The reality is, is the organs of the state, the guards, the Department of Social Welfare, the HSE, things like even your bank, don't ring you up looking for your personal details. They've all made that really clear. So if anybody's looking for that thing, saying, that, oh, to claim your pension or to do something like that or health or hate you? The answer is no. Don't engage with it. You can go back through the phone call, ring back the, the actual proper authorities, etc., etc. Mm. So what, what, what we want is people not to engage with things. You know, what we need people to realise is if they need a service, they should be reaching out for the service rather than the service always re, 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 reaching in. I think the big thing for, for us is is that we have initiatives with Active Retirement Ireland and that, where we, you know, and other agencies are doing the same, where we need to get older people to jump the digital divide and we need to support older people to be engaged with, online, but in a safe way. Up to the end of July, the first seven months of this year, 15 million euro has been taken off people through these scams. That's an average of €5,300. That's a a lot of money to be down in just a couple of seconds with uh, the flick of a mouse type of thing. 
Absolutely. And I think what we have to get people to do is if somebody might feel embarrassed because, oh, I got taken in by that. We must report these crimes to the guards. They're building up the knowledge and the ability and the capacity to respond. And we must report these to the guards, same as we would any other, any other crime. So bit by bit, we can they can be they can be they can be shut down. I think that's what people need to realise is some of these scams that come in look very realistic, but really not to you know if it's spam, if it's say asking you to follow links to do this to give this. Don't engage, hang up, or else delete delete the email. Mm, absolutely. Be careful. Uh, it can be very, very costly. Sean, thank you for that advice, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Sean Moynihan is uh, the Chief Executive Officer with the Alone Charity. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we're going to be talking uh, about Airgrid's North-South Interconnector a little bit later on in the programme because it's full steam ahead, 400 kV cables on overhead pylons. Uh, That's the plan and it's a plan that's in action. At least that's according to Airgrid. Uh, and uh, we asked Minister Thomas Byrne uh, if he'd like to speak to us about it on the programme today. The Minister is not available, unfortunately, but he did issue with a statement uh, in which he says he apologises for not being available today as he is officiating at the opening of a major job creating enterprise in the constituency this morning. Uh, but he goes on to say that in April of this year, the Department of Communications, Climate Action and Environment published terms of reference for a review in relation to the feasibility of undergrounding the North-South Interconnector. Those terms of reference are available to read on the Department's website. The following month, which would have been May, following a tender process, a group of international consultants carry out the review in line with the terms of reference. Minister Ryan has confirmed that this review is expected to be completed later this year. The government is 100% committed to this process. Now, as I say, that's uh, the statement uh, that the Minister has issued us with because he's not available to talk to us uh, this morning. Uh, And that review will look at the potential or the plausibility or the possibility of undergrounding the cables, which uh, is interesting uh, because... If that doesn't happen, you'd need the pylons so that they could run overground on the pylons. Uh, so we're going to hear just a little bit from Airgrid now. We'll hear more from them later when they tell us that they're going to head overground. But they were asked about the pylons that you'd need to put the cables on if you're going to overground and if there are any pylons in the country that have been bought for this project as yet. Uh, just very briefly at the, at the question, I think, uh, related to North South Interconnection, just to say, you know, we are anticipating a positive outcome in Northern Ireland, and it would be um, wrong of me not to say that. Um, and and elements of procurement are underway, engagements underway. The project is in execution mode, and, and I, I need to be, you know, very frank about that. And it will ramp up very considerably as soon as we get a positive outcome from the judicial process in Northern Ireland. Oh, my mistake. <laughs> I'm going to play that for you a little bit later. That's uh, Mark Foley, uh, who's the chief executive officer of Airgrid. And uh, what he's saying there is that the project is in a 
execution mode, which is that they're going to go ahead with it. Uh, we'll hear that again, I think, later when we speak to Darren O'Rourke about it, because he's very concerned at what Mark Foley had to say. But this is what Mr. Foley had to say about the pylons. No, there's no pylons in the country. Um, we have procured the design of the pylons. That work is ongoing. We're awaiting a decision from the judicial process in Northern Ireland, which a bit disappointed. We haven't got it yet. We thought it would be in September, but we hope it's imminent. Um, and you asked about engagement. We are engagement, engaging with the relevant local authorities in both jurisdictions and with landowners. I am not going to speak in detail about landowner engagement in fairness to those landowners who are engaging in a very constructive way with us. Um, but there is a lot of engagement going on and I'm confident that will be a positive outcome. All right, that's uh, Mark Foley of Airgrid. Uh, as I say, Minister Byrne isn't available to us. We will be speaking with Darren O'Rourke about that a, a little bit later on. We might speak to Peter Tobin about it a little bit later on too, given uh, how he said that the project is being executed as he puts it, which means full steam ahead. Uh, I want to say uh, thanks uh, to Claire who was in touch with us yesterday about the discussion we had with uh, Fiona Toomey of HUG about uh, bereavement uh, following death by suicide. And Claire says uh, there's never really been a huge amount of support available for people bereaved by suicide and they're badly needed. She lost a member of uh, the family to suicide 20 years ago and it's had a, a lasting effect on her life. All support services are to be welcomed. Thank you, Claire. I didn't get your comment yesterday. I did want to read it uh, because I did want to reiterate that if, like Claire or Claire yourself, if uh, you would like to see change or you would like to see an improvement in what's available to people, they are asking you to do the survey. Uh, they have a survey on exactly this issue uh, for people who have been bereaved by death, by suicide. And if you've lost somebody to suicide, go to hug.ie, H-U-G-G dot I-E, and then just press the button where it asks you to do a survey. Some more comments now. Theresa in touch with us saying Jed Nash said that there are people... Uh, that people aren't banging down his door looking for 20 euro tax breaks, but we are looking for tax breaks. Uh, we need 20 euro increase to cover the cost of petrol. I'm spending over 100 a week com- commuting to Blanchardstown from Dundalk, uh, says uh, Theresa. Thanks uh, indeed. Uh, I think uh, Jed Nash was talking about income tax cuts of 20 euro. Uh, Michael uh, thinks uh, that it's wrong for the government to send a representative to the event in Armagh, uh, uh, which will commemorate the per- per- partition of Ireland and the establishment of Northern Ireland. Michael says, it is so wrong for all of uh, the people who died. The government represents the people of Ireland, not themselves. It's a disgrace. It does look like Simon Coveney is going to be attending that uh, event, but uh, thanks uh, for calling us uh, this morning. Uh, another call um, from someone who says, Ireland owes billions, trillions, I think, uh, we heard earlier this morning. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are leading people up the garden path. Thank you indeed uh, to that caller as well uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. Some of uh, the text messages uh, that have been coming to us as well. Uh, somebody in touch to say they got a text from on post and they ignored it. This is going back to the idea of the scam calls. They got this text from on post and they ignored it. Uh, but it turned out to be a VAT bill 
post-Brexit. Uh, and you may be getting those bills uh, if you've been getting items in the post from the UK. And it is money that is owed. Uh, and uh, I think you're probably uh, as well advised to pay that money. Now, uh, as you know, um, there was a protest outside of uh, the Dáil yesterday about maternity services. Uh, and indeed how partners can't uh, attend when women are in labour or about to give birth or indeed for many of the important uh, appointments and the impact that all of that has had on so many people all of course tied into the pandemic but there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of upset about it uh, and yesterday Patrick Tobin of AIN2 brought a, a bill to the doll which would put a, a, an end to those restrictions One woman recounted her experience to me uh, uh, in the email to the minister and I quote I had to sit in a room alone to be told that my baby had died I was sent from this room alone reeling from what I had just heard to sit in a busy corridor sobbing alone. This is simply unacceptable, she points out. At no point was I allowed to have my husband present to provide any sort of comfort. I sat for hours alone and broken in one of your maternity hospitals. Not a single person offered me the comfort that I craved or needed. In another email to Stephen Donnelly on the 5th of October 2020, a woman recalled a miscarriage that she had. And again, I quote, The monitor turned dark and the midwife told me that there was no heartbeat. It was an unexpected, earth-shattering experience that no woman should have to go through, especially alone. She says, it's a scandal of our time that women are forced to endure this by themselves. Separately, another citizen sent an email to the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach sent it to the Minister for Health on the 28th of September 2020. In in, In this email, the individual says, My wife has experienced nine miscarriages in the last six years and my wife is in early pregnancy at the moment. And while this is great news and we are delighted, we are really nervous and really anxious due to our history. Some hard stories there, some very upsetting stories there in those emails uh, that Petter Tobin read into uh, the Dáil record that had been sent uh, to government uh, by some of the women who have been giving birth throughout uh, the lockdowns and the restrictions. And Petter Tobin had this question then for the government. How can you reconcile that with the fact that nightclubs will be open in this state on the 23rd of October without restrictions? How can you reconcile the experience of these women with the fact that you will have situations where all of hospitality will be back to normal uh, in in, in, uh, literally a number of weeks? You know, I'm always concerned when I hear a government say that there's only so much we can do on a particular issue, that Minister Donnelly has said that he wants these restrictions lifted, but the individual hospital is responsible for their own restrictions. This is a cop-out. You are in government, you are in power, you have the majority, you create the laws, and you create the rules that exist in this country. You can't say that you know, you're in some way a passenger on this ship. You're driving the ship of state at the moment in time. How come a small opposition party such as AIN2 can develop a bill that gets to the heart of the issue, that seeks for safe accompaniment of mothers by a partner in their time of need, and do it safely. In our bill states that a person, you know, will have to prove that they, they through an antigen test or some other tests, that they don't have COVID, and um, that they don't have any symptoms, etc. 
But that still, if that is the case, if it's safe to go in and accompany their partner to, to be able to do it, I would urge everybody from this house to support this bill and help it go through the doll as quick as possible. That's Peter Tobin. We'll be speaking with Peter Tobin later on uh, and we may ask him about how Airgrid is going ahead or Airgrid is telling uh, politicians that it's going ahead with uh, the overhead uh, project uh, that is the North-South Interconnector that they're going ahead with that project. Overground, as always, was planned. Uh, the plan is being executed as we speak, the Chief Executive Officer said. We might ask him about that, but we will be asking him about Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. Uh, because yesterday, AIN2 published a letter that was written to staff in the hospital by the HSE, and it says the emergency department is closing. It says, I'll read exactly what it says, in July 2021, the HSE board met in relation to Our Lady's Hospital in Navan and sanctioned the reconfiguration of the hospital. That's a, another way of saying reconfiguring the services that are in the hospital, taking some out and putting some in, the reconfiguration of the hospital. And they said, this means that the emergency department at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan is to be reconfigured to a medical assessment unit, an MAU, with more capacity than that which already exists. That means the emergency department is closing and it will be replaced by a medical assessment unit. It is in black and white. And I'll read it again. That means the emergency department at Our Lady's Hospital in Navan is to be reconfigured to a medical assessment unit, an MAU, with more capacity than that which already exists. The MAU, that's this medical assessment unit, which is going to be put in place when the emergency department closes. The MAU is to be operational 24 hours over seven days and patients will be seen on the basis of a GP referral to the unit. The current local injuries unit will remain open to self-referrals and with the same opening hours, the hospital will not require an intensive care unit but will operate a post-anesthetic care unit specifically relative to orthopaedic surgical activity. The coronary the coronary care unit is to operate as a medical observation unit. So that's uh, downgrading of the hospital. The emergency department is gone. The ICU beds are gone. The coronary care unit is uh, to operate as a medical observation unit. And we will we'll hear more about that later in the programme, as I mentioned. Uh, some more of the messages. Uh, somebody else says, what's the point in charging carbon tax on coal when the people will still burn the same amount of coal? That's not saving the planet. That's the government getting more tax. All coal should be smokeless. Somebody else says, the only way I light my fire is with coal and briquettes and oil. I need electric on to heat my hot water. Uh, Another text from somebody else who says, uh, why did uh, Jed Nash not close those dodgy tax loopholes when he was in government? None of them are anything new. Thank you indeed uh, for your message. If you have been in touch with with us today, it's uh, great to hear from you, whether you've been texting us, emailing us, WhatsApping us, getting in touch on social media or phoning us for that matter. Good to hear from you, as I say. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, was in front of the Health Committee yesterday. He was taking questions about Slauncha Care and indeed about why there have been high-profile resignations from the Slauncha Care Implementation Advisory Council. I think ultimately, um, as Robert has said, the Laura was frustrated. I, I think probably um, the structure of the Slauncha Care team um, needed to be changed. 
uh, and that's exactly what we're doing. In terms of why Professor Keane resigned, um, he referenced a resistance to change, uh, and in his letter, as you'll be aware, to uh, the council that he chaired, he felt that the environment was such that change was impossible. Um, uh, so, and what, what's your understanding of what he meant by that? Well, to, to be honest, Deputy, I, I, I am somewhat puzzled by that because what I see right across the system is change. Um, so, so we were, sorry, are you saying then you don't understand why those two people resigned? N no, I've, I've just told you why I think Laura may have resigned. And when it comes to uh, did, Professor, did, Professor so, Keane... Sorry, do you think she was looking for a structure like what you're proposing now? Well, really, that's a question for uh, for Laura, Deputy. You, you asked me why well, I think she I'm asking you your, what your understanding of the situation is. Yeah, and, and I've given you my understanding of the situation. Okay, it seems to indicate that you don't have an understanding of why they resigned. Well, you can you can say that if you want, Deputy. You asked me what my understanding was. I, I've told you what my understanding is. That's the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, to Fine Gael's spokesperson on health, Colin Burke, a TD for Cork North Central and a member of uh, that committee. A very good morning to you, Colin Burke, and thanks uh, indeed morning, for joining us. I think the Minister there uh, was highlighting the frustrations uh, that Tom Keane and Laura McGahey felt. Uh, but earlier on, he, he told you that he wasn't aware of any frustrations before the resignations. Yeah, and I, I asked him the questions. Um, the question was, you know, was he aware that this was kind of coming down the line? He said he wasn't aware of it at all until it actually was landed on his desk um, and that he wasn't aware of the frustrations and that he they weren't conveyed to him, but he didn't clarify as regards whether they were conveyed to other members in, uh, to to. Um, the people working in his department. So he That's a minister who's not on top of his brief. Well, I don't agree with that. In fairness, I think the whole Sloan care issue, uh, we, you know, it has been a very difficult time over the last 18 months. And Do you disagree with, with it? Seriously, no, I, like, I, I, I mean, you know, you're talking about the most uh, important radical reform of the health service and the people who are charged with implementing that reform resign to the surprise of the minister. He was in the dark. Well, he had no, he had no indication the, that there was a, a problem coming down the line yeah, like this. That's I'm a not, minister who's not on top of his brief, surely. I'm, I'm not within the department and I do not know what goes on within the department. In fact, I'm, I have the disadvantage in that... Uh, people who were health spokespersons for the opposition parties get briefed more than what I do. So I have to work on basically mm. asking the questions at the committee. And I, oh, no, I appreciate the that. Yeah, yeah. I asked mm. the questions at the committee mm. yesterday. Mm. He confirmed to me that he wasn't aware of the frustrations. He also confirmed that he was not aware if those frustrations were conveyed to um, the uh, two officials within mm. the department. And they were a week previously. We heard through the committee hearing yesterday yeah, to Robert so Watts. Yeah. Those weren't, mm. uh, they were not conveyed to the minister. And I suppose what we have to look at now, we have to look at going forward on this whole issue in relation to reform of the healthcare sector. We have huge challenges ahead of uh, for us in the sense that we have an ageing population. We have With a minister who isn't on top of his brief though? But we have a, remember we've do, we, so there's been quite a, a a lot of work being done in relation to reform in relation to delivery. For instance, you take in relation to the number of people working in HSC now. We're gone from 103,000 people, and that's whole time equivalents. Now that's people working full time. If you you know if people are working part time, it's 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 combining it all into 
The number in December 2014 was 103,000. We now have 126,000 people working in the HSE. That's a 23%, 24% increase in the last uh, number of years. We've torn up Slauncher Care. No, no, we have not torn up Slauncher Care. We're we're reinventing it. No, 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 no. And we've taken away the independence of the advisory council. We're getting the HSE and the Department of Health now to do what they've been doing, I suppose. Remember, if we you have you have a structure where you have the department which implements government policy you have the HSE which delivers as regards the healthcare that's required and then what you've got to do is Sloan Care was there for in relation to reform mm. the board set up in order to deal with that reform it's a small tight board as um, as announced by the minister mm. and it's going to be jointly run by the department of health and the HSE. Now, people may criticise that. Exactly the problem. Exactly the problem. That's why the Advisory Council was established to take these decisions away from the HSE and away from the department. And now they're going to be chaired by the CEO of the HSE and uh, the Secretary General of the department uh, who are at all costs resisting Slogic are they not? It's like running your own radio station. If you've got an Advisory Council with a large number of people running it advising you how to run your radio station you wouldn't run it very well. So what I am saying to you is we've got to get on with the reform that is required. We've got to update the whole area in relation to e-health. We've got to make sure we can deliver on infrastructure projects. For instance, I'm fighting very hard at the moment in relation to a new elective hospital in Cork. There's a need for a new elective hospital in Dublin and in, in Galway. So, and, you know, the proposal from Slauncare was that it would be a day facility only. Mm. I don't believe a day facility is sufficient because I serve on the board of a hospital in Cork. We have a hospital and the board, the hospital that I'm in, the, the initial building was built in 1751. Uh, you can imagine that is fairly well out of date and we have to work within, we can do some work on it, we can do some modernisation, right. but not to the scale that we require and that's why I'm looking for a new elective hospital there. Well, there was and another, like, there was another resignation. Like, there's other reforms that is required in well, relation to healthcare. There's lots of them, but there was another resignation, Professor Anthony O'Connor, who obviously feels that the Slauncher Care plan has been torn to shreds because he's saying, well, you'll come up with some iteration of it, but it won't uh, be recognisable in terms of what was originally planned. Well, the whole idea in relation to Slauncher was to go and deliver a healthcare plan where people would have access to it. We now currently have a huge waiting list. We need to deal with that. We have a challenge in relation to that. We have a challenge in relation to um, elderly care. We have a challenge in relation to a whole range of areas. But remember... And given the scale of the crisis, 907,000... We are delivering major infrastructural projects at the moment, like the new children's hospital. People can criticise it, but... No, it doesn't take 907,000 people off the waiting list as we speak. No, Uh, no, no, uh, but if you have the infrastructure in place... And is it not... In relation to do, Michael, in relation to do an operation, you need a number of key components. You need a medical consultant, Mm. you need to have an anaesthetics consultant, Mm. you need to have theatre space, you need to have a a support team in theatre, and then you need to have a bed to put the patient Mm. in. I was talking to consultants in the last week, for instance. These are consultants who've come back from the States where they were So can operating. we not do that? Can, can no, we no, not, no, are we not no, able just, to do that? But, but just let me... No, but that's, that's the point. That's the point what the health service is, is there for. That's have, what Slauncher Care is there for, to reform it so that we, we don't have 900,000 people on the waiting list. We have consultants who've come back from the States where 
they were mm. working, where they were operating three and four and five days a week. They're now coming back to Ireland to jobs where they're only operating a half day week because they don't have access to beds. We need a minister who knows what's happening, don't we? We remember we've increased the number of beds in the last two years by over 850 beds. So, like, we we have to add to the to the number of beds mm. that we uh, that are there in order that you can then do the procedures and that you have the follow up care. If there's one of those, was the minister spoofing when he told you that he he didn't know that these resignations were coming down the line? And did he realise well, that? that, that, that another, did he re- did he did, did, did he realise then that he sounded ridiculous when he, he said that he he realised that the people involved were fr- frustrated? Okay, Michael, that's a question you have to ask the minister. I've asked a question, mm. he, uh, and I cross-examined him on it, and these are the answers that he gave. I can't, you know, uh, say what the minister what the minister was thinking, but he did give the, quest- the answers to the questions that I asked, mm. and uh, that's my job on the health committee. We're there in order to scrutinise what's happening in healthcare. Mm. I've been involved in that health committee for the last 11 years. I've seen huge changes, mm. but I also see huge challenges, and there are new challenges okay, every day. Okay, but, but tell and me we've this. Got t- to get on, we've got to get on with delivery, and we've got to look mm. to the future in Russia healthcare t- as well. T- t- tell me There's this, though. a lot though. of good things yeah. done in Russia healthcare and uh, Russia uh, cancer I know, care but tell me this. Please tell me this and no more. If you were the Minister for Health, uh, and you had this programme of reform uh, so that you wouldn't have 900,000 people on waiting lists uh, and so on, so that you would have universal care, so that you would have better structures in place through these regional structures so that people would know what's happening on the ground and so on, and that the health service uh, would come up to a standard that people would find acceptable. If that programme of reform uh, was under your remit, would you not be meeting regularly, once a week, once a month, uh, once every once every three months, with the people who are charged uh, to implement that reform, and and and, and if you and if you were doing that, would you not know if they were frustrated? Yeah, but Michael, what I'm saying to you is that with a very tight board, now which we're talking about dealing with enriched reform, you can now meet on a, 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 a far more frequently because you have less people to arrange for those meetings. Therefore, I believe that you can drive the reform, and we have made. Um, uh, you know, we've made a lot of changes over the last number of years. You know, you take, say, for instance, in, in relation to the area of employment in this country, you go back to 2011 with 15% unemployment, with 50,000 people a year leaving the country. Mm. We turned that around where we created over 400,000 jobs. I don't think you could run a GP surgery with that hands-off approach. If, that's the, no, if no, that was no, the case, no, no, if the no, minister no. wasn't aware that these people were frustrated, there's something no, terribly the, wrong. It was a very tight group of people that came along and worked on this to deliver those jobs we know of a situation where for the first time in 170 years the population of this country is above the pre-famine time we're over 5 million of a population and that has because people have confidence that Ireland is is a good place to live in and people while there's a huge amount of negativity Mm. on social media and on media generally there's a lot of good progress being made in relation to job creation and everything else and just in relation to the problems that were created by the HSE and the Department of Health are going to be reformed by the HSE and the Department of Health no 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 they're going to be reformed they're going to be reformed by Mm. the the overall the Oireachtas the government is answerable to the Oireachtas Mm. And likewise, the Minister for Health is answerable to the Health Committee. And our job in the Health Committee is to make sure that where there's a clear plan that it's implemented and that there's also accountability in the event of there's a... a, a, if if some aspects of that plan are not being delivered on. And I'm confident that we can... um, 
bring about the reform. Okay. But we have to deliver infrastructure projects as well to well, give the support. We need up-to-date equipment. We need to uh, make sure that we have an adequate number mm. of staff with the skills uh, and, to deliver the and service. And that's the objective of the programme. we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed You're for joining us. Very very always good to talk Michael. to you. That's uh, Colin Burke, uh, Fine Gael TD and member of uh, the Rockdale South Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, I played out uh, what Mark Foley had to say to an Rockdust uh, committee earlier on in the programme. Uh, hadn't intended to uh, play that actual clap, uh, clip uh, where he said uh, that uh, the air grid north-south interconnector is going ahead as planned overground with the 400 kV cables on the pylons. But I did play it. Uh, I, I had... Uh, meant to hold off until we were speaking with uh, Darren O'Rourke who is with us now uh, he's a, a member of uh, the committee that uh, Mark Foley was speaking to Mark Foley is the top man in Airgrid he's uh, the chief executive officer of Airgrid uh, so as far as he's concerned it, it's going ahead it's going ahead it's going ahead over ground it's going ahead over ground with the 400 kV cables the way it's always been planned the way people it seems forever in a day have been objecting to and I think we'll play it again because he's said this in the last couple of days, despite all of this talk and the statement we got from Thomas Byrne this morning about this review, uh, which is to look at the potential undergrounding and so on. Here is the Chief Executive Officer of Airgrid. Yeah, just very briefly at the, at the question, I think, uh, related to North South Interconnection, just to say, you know, we are anticipating a positive outcome in Northern Ireland and it would be um, wrong of me not to say that. Um, and And elements of procurement are underway, engagements underway. The project is in execution mode and and I, I need to be, you know, very frank about that. And it will ramp up very considerably as soon as we get a positive outcome from the judicial process in Northern Ireland. Darren O'Rourke, I suppose if nothing else, uh, you appreciate the fact that he was frank about it. He, he certainly was and um, you know, uh, I, I think that's our, our experience of, of Mr Foley in any of the engagements I've had at the committee um, uh, he has been absolutely stubborn in his uh, position. Um, a number of things I would take from the exchange uh, at the at the committee. Um, f- first of all, I specifically asked in relation to an update on the project, uh, an update on the government-led review and an update on the judicial review in the north. The only response uh, related to the judicial review in the north, and as you, you played there, Michael, the, when the judicial review in the north, they're expecting a, a positive outcome, and then uh, things are going to ramp up significantly uh, uh, to deliver on the project as they plan. Now, that really raises the question, where is the government-led review? What, if anything, does it mean? Um, what impact will it have? Is it a foregone conclusion? Um, uh, and uh, I, I don't know the answer to that, to that but I have, uh, on the back of, of, of the committee meeting, I have deep suspicions. Um, I would have suspicions from, from the outset in terms of the the validity and, and uh, compre- how comprehensive this review was going to be. It seems to be the case now that it is almost irrelevant uh, as far as Mr Foley and Airgrid uh, are concerned. Well, and he was quite frank about that. Absolutely. That, mm. that's, that seems to be the case. And, and I think mm. government 
and our uh, local TDs in the area that represent government parties need to respond. Uh, um, where are they in relation to it? Where are their parties in relation to it? Where is the government in relation mm-hmm. to this? Because, because really, um, you know, do they support Airgrid's position? Is it the case that all we need to wait for here is the judicial review in the north, mm-hmm. or is this? And I have parliamentary replies uh, as to Johnny Gurk and uh, Pauline Tully and Matt Carty in relation to this. Um, that, you know, despite the fact that uh, we're months waiting for that review to be established, um, that it will be established and will conclude its work by the end of the year. That in and of itself, in the middle of October, raises the question of of how thorough a review it will be if, you know, it's longer in preparation than it is in uh, in doing its work. Um, And this, for me, Michael, and this is the really important point in relation to this, is just another example of uh, between Airgrid, supported, as far as I can see, by the government, just taking local communities absolutely for granted. And to add insult to injury, in Mark Foley's opening statement, he talked about how Airgrid uh, were confident because mm. they were listening to communities that they would be able to expand the electricity network and increasingly, yeah. um, because of the back of pub- public consultation, projects were going underground. Don't forget, M- Mark Foley and Airgrid were, were before the committee because we are at risk of blackouts over mm. this winter. Um, like this is these are the the operator we had the the regulator in as well, so I think there are you know and there were very serious questions to be a- a- answered in terms of how this organization goes about its business and, and there were many questions asked of Mr. Foley and our grid uh, and one of them was about the pylons. He was quite frank uh, in his response uh, to you about that, saying uh, there weren 't any pylons in the country yet, but they 'd gone to design. Uh, he wasn't quite as frank about where those pylons will go when they do come into the country because he's adamant, obviously, this is going ahead using the pylons. Uh, 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 but he did say that there's very good negotiations going on with landowners, but he didn't expand on that. No, and, and wouldn't. And, uh, you know, and like um, it, it is almost a thing of that's what he would say, isn't it? Uh, that's, that's the way I have to say I, I look at it. Um, we talked about engagement with local authorities. That's been documented and, and reported. Um, but I asked the question uh, how uh, Airgrid intended to get on to landowners' land without the consent of, of landowners. And the response was quite a generic one, um, ongoing engagement and didn't want to, to reflect on that ongoing so-called positive engagement. I think, and I'm sure your listeners, um, many of whom will be uh, will landowners and, and their representatives in, in um, the Monaghan Group and in NEPP and in Mead, um, they are very, very clear. And I have to say, you know, in my experience uh, of campaigns down through the years, there has never been uh, a group so unified and cohesive and together on an issue as, a, a, as the landowners in relation to the NEPP. So it would strike me as not not credible, uh, to be honest, that um, there's this ongoing positive engagement with landowners, and we have no evidence of it. All right, well, in three words to summarise the air grid position, full steam ahead. Uh, I think that's very clear from what Mr Foley said to you and the other members of uh, the committee, and I'm sure that we will return to this on the programme. But while you're here, uh, can I ask you another question? Because I will be asking Patrick O'Bean about... 
uh, Airgrid, uh, and I want to ask you about the hospital because uh, of the letter that he published yesterday to staff from the HSE, uh, which makes it very clear that the emergency department in Navan is closing and with it the ICU beds. That's it, exactly. Um, and I've, I've seen the letter myself and it spells it out um, literally in black and white for for staff and for, for the public. And I have to say, you know, it, it says clearly um, that the emergency department will be replaced by an MAU and, and an LIU, a, a medical assessment unit and a local injuries unit, and that the hospital will not re- require an intensive care unit. Um, th- those words are there in, mm-hmm. in, in black and white. So, um, so it's exactly as those of us who have, uh, you know, been listening to the staff and been uh, following this issue for for many years have indicated. Um, and you know, we were. It's what we. It's what all of us. Uh, I mean, because uh, I mean, we, we we took a position on it, if you like, uh, on the program uh, that we were. Uh, capable of reading between the lines from the HSE uh, to interpret it that that was what was going to happen as you did as Pedro Tobin did as other local representatives did uh, but they just wouldn't say it why won't they say it what is it why are they treating people like infants in relation to this yeah, well, well, I, I think there's deliberate strategy in relation to it. And, and, and don't forget, like, we have been accused, as were, you know, my council colleagues at a Mead County Council meeting, a, a accused of scaremongering and that this idea mm. of, of the A&E and ICU closing down, it's been on the agenda yeah. and it's the opposition whipping, whipping up a furore for their own political advantage. Damien um, English came on the programme and said, it's not happening. Thomas Byrne couldn't come on the programme and said, you can't say that. You can't say it's happening because it's not happening, but he couldn't come on the programme. Here we are. It's happening. Absolutely. No, and, and it's there in black and white for anybody. And like I would say, don't take my word from it. Don't take Sinn Féin's word or the, the, the hospital campaign. Literally see it with your own eyes. It's on social media. Listen to what the minister said in response uh, last week. And, and I'd also make the point, mm. Michael, there was a commitment um, that we would meet as, as Mead or Octus members um, from all parties with the with the Minister for, for Health uh, this week. Mm. Um, I followed up on that. Johnny Gork did. I, I think Pat Ortobin did as well. There's been zero response in relation to that. No indication, no meeting. Um, uh, not that, that we're aware of. And to me, it's Well, we, we, we know there's a meeting taking place. We were told, at least, that there's a meeting taking place, that the minister was going to meet with Thomas Byrne and Damien English. Uh, and yeah. uh, it was Anne Rabbit who said she'd asked that uh, the opposition members in the county would be able to attend as well. Yeah, so, so I would ask the question, did that? And I, and I have uh, literally last night written to the minister in follow-up to a, a previous uh, correspondence and asked, right. did a meeting take place? Um, when did it take place? Um, what, you know, why weren't the other Eroctus members from County Mead okay. um, a, a, a included in it? And you know, this is just more of the same, Michael, in okay. terms of of uh, how this is being handled. And I think it's completely disingenuous, and it is taking people for for idiots. And and the people of Mead are far from that. You'll have to forgive me, but I have to wrap up for the moment. But we uh, will continue the conversation with Patrick Hobie in a moment. And that conversation is that as things stand. It's full steam ahead, overground for the north-south interconnector as far as Airgrid is concerned. And the emergency department and the ICU is closing in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan as far as the HSE is concerned. 
Absolutely, and, and, and I think both of those things, Michael, those are statements of fact that you have made, and that is a call to action for the people of Mead to come out and rally and protest and resist these uh, measures, and I, I firmly believe the people of Mead will do that. Sinn Féin TD for me, East, Darren Rook, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, boys and girls... Don't be worried about the hospital. Go out and play. Do something uh, that uh, you'll enjoy. This is a conversation for the grown-ups. It's none of your business, in fact. Even if it is your local hospital, don't be worried about it. Whether it's the right decision or not, the emergency department in Navan is closing and the ICU beds are not required. That's the HSE position. Navan Hospital, the A&E, is set to be closed uh, by this government and the HSE. Um, Now, over the last... 20 months, the front line of COVID has been emergency service, beds and ICUs. You've even mentioned yourself that the reason why we can't have normal rules in maternity hospitals is because there's still a threat from COVID. We had the Minister for Health yesterday talk about extending the most uh, draconian restrictions in Europe because of the threat of COVID. Yet this government seeks to close ICU beds and emergency uh, uh, and uh, accident emergency beds in Navan now. You couldn't make it up, Minister. In one, in one hand, you're saying there's a crisis, a crisis that has led to 5,200 people's deaths. And right now, you're looking to close the front line of those Thank services. You, Deputy, there will be 10,000 people up, marching Minister, on the streets of Mead up, Deputy, please, in this month. Please, will you Deputy, commit to protecting please, Deputy, the services in Navan Hospital? Please. Yeah, I'll certainly look, I'll take the matter up directly with, with the Minister for Health and I'll relay your comments here this morning in that regard. Thank you. I have been told by at least please, five ministers no, no, that they will get no, back no, to no, me. We're not having this. Ministers never get back. And any questions I've asked from this side of, of, of the doll, I have never heard. The tone to said that Stephen Donnelly would get back on this question just last week. And nobody comes back ever. It is purely for theatre. And the frustration is out of order for a minister to say that people will come back when they never come back. Well, it's Peter Tobin. They didn't come back. And you're not going to tell the boys and girls the news uh, that the grown-ups are, are closing the emergency department on them? Well, just the, the frustration is unbelievable at the moment among mm. so many people in Meath. Uh, and I have raised this issue a number of times over the last week. And each time, you know, very, in a very relaxed mode, a minister or a tonist or, or somebody uh, gets up from the government side and says, ah, listen, this is, this is important and we'll get back to you. And nobody gets back. They, they don't make a phone call. They don't get an, send an email. They don't even contact us through phone or anything. Uh, it is, they're lying, to be honest, and I, and, I, and I don't say that lightly. But if a person tells you they're going to get back to you on, a, on an issue of this importance, a life and death issue for County Mead, and then doesn't even bother to pick up the phone afterwards, they need to be called out for that. So um, it's very seldom. That, well, I don't uh, think they were lying. That's probably too strong a, a term. Uh, but uh, maybe uh, you were misled and maybe uh, it wasn't truthful to say uh, that they would or maybe something happened that stopped I that. I understand you have a job to do in relation to keeping balance here. But I, all I will say is that um, they, it is absolutely wrong when a minister tells an elected representative of a county um, that they're going to get back with uh, life and death issues. Mm. 
on the potential imminent closure of this hospital. Well, the letter the letter to the staff that you published yesterday says the emergency department will be reconfigured to a medical assessment unit. That means the emergency department is closing uh, and the hospital will not require an intensive care unit. It's clear. It's, it, it's absolutely clear that the, in the government's plans and the HSE plans currently, the A&E in Navin will be toast. And that is absolutely shocking on so many levels. It is the most important piece of infrastructure that exists in County Meath. And the, the plan that they're using to close it is an outdated plan uh, going back nearly 12 years, a transformation plan. That plan initially had a new regional hospital as part of that plan. It was sold to the local GPs and the local medical professionals mm. That we will close the, the A&E, uh, we will reduce those services, but there would be a new regional hospital. Well, people have been treated like infants, and that's the point that I've been trying to make uh, in saying boys and girls. People have been treated like infants. This is public information, or should be public information, but it's not been made available to the public. Absolutely, and, and I have a worry here, um, and my, my concern, and I've heard this from a number of people locally, is that the HSC are looking to proceed with this closure before the senior minister returns. Uh, in the county from maternity leave. And I think that will be a really cynical uh, move by the HSE and uh, that we don't have yep. somebody at the, um, the cabinet table currently that would be able to fight our battle on this and that they would try to move in advance of that. And just to remind people as well, when we asked directly, as specifically and directly as possible, uh, we were told the HSE is not making any comment. The HSE does not want to tell people that they are closing the emergency department and they are closing the intensive care. And that is what this letter says, exactly what this letter says. Exactly. So, And, and, and I believe last night there was a meeting uh, between the HSE and GPs uh, in the, uh, the county as well, in which the, 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 that literally uh, objective of the HSE was also sold, uh, or an effort was sold to make it sold to them, that, uh, that this would be the right thing. Okay. To take up from where we left off with Darren Rourke, who was with us just before you joined us, the HSE position is they're closing the emergency department and the ICU in Our Ladies in Navin. Airgrid's position is that it's going full steam ahead with the North-South interconnector as planned with the overground pylons and cables. And once again, we'll just take a little listen to what Mark Foley had to say about the work that's going on in relation to that project. Elements of procurement are underway, engagements underway. The project is in execution mode and and I, I need to be you know very frank about that. And it will ramp up very considerably as soon as we get a positive outcome from the judicial process in order. Now, he couldn't have been franker. The project is in execution mode, full steam ahead. Yeah, it's, it, it, from the government's perspective, you know, they're, they're going to build 409 pylons up to 51 metres high, carrying 400,000 volts through our, our county. And, and but again, we're county. being told otherwise. I mean, this is very similar to the hospital. We're being told that's not going to happen. Uh, the body charged with overseeing the project says, full steam ahead. The hospital isn't closing the emergency department. The HSE says it is closing the emergency department. So in other words, you have a political class in government protecting their own interests, trying to pretend something is not going to happen. Then we get to a cliff, it happens, and they, they shrug their shoulders and say, well, we, we, we did our best to stop it. And they hope that people will have forgotten about it by the next election. Um, that's me, amazing. That's, it, that, is that what's happening? I mean, should I be I, pinching myself? Is that, is that actually what's happening? Well, I, I actually spoke to another opposition. I, I, I'll be honest, I spoke to Jed Nash, a uh, Labour uh, Party TD from 
um, obviously from County no, Loud, no. and um, he was very concerned in relation to what's happening in, in, in Navin Hospital because this will put enormous pressure in, in, in Drogheda. Mm-hmm. And he actually asked, he asked me, like, you know, have, has the minister sought to brought in uh, local TVs yet? And I said, yes. And, I, and then he said, well, that's, that's, you know, that's part, that's part four of a normal plan that the government has when they want to close a key piece of infrastructure. This is textbook uh, closure of infrastructure, and this is textbook uh, the government pushing ahead with projects against the government will, against the, uh, the consent of the people that they are meant to represent. And we have three ministers in Leinster House that are meant to be representing us at the moment. And they are nowhere to be seen on okay. this issue whatsoever. No, they aren't. Uh, we have to leave it there. Thank you, uh, as always. Peter Tobin, a founder and a leader of AIN2 and a TD for Mead West. That's our programme. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am, LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 